Blog Talk Radio. December 19th, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see people are refreshing over here in the blog talk radio chat room. Welcome, everyone. If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can check out the program notes for today's show. I was kind of struggling with a title this morning, and I decided to go ahead and call it in honor of the fact that today is the day that the Electoral College meets and votes all over the country. We're calling it Live from the Clinton Archipelago, and this is a name that I got because of a map that was made by the creative people over at PJ Media. That map is one of the links that you'll find in the program notes at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. So go ahead and zoom over there and check it out if you want to see what I've got in store for you today. It's a whole sort of eclectic collection that I couldn't even unite alliteratively like I was doing last week. So go ahead and go check it out. If you're listening live, either over here at blog talk. Maybe you're hanging out in the chat room. You can participate in the chat room. You can also call in. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. There's something that we learned since last week when we were looking at the Electoral College, and that is that I guess we're going to actually get the results today. We're not going to have to wait until January 6th, as Ed and I were talking about last week. Oh, people are not hearing this, the sound? I hope everyone's hearing the sound. Let me know in the chat room over here if you're hearing the sound. <laughs> yeah, Clinton Archipelago is a really creative thing. Okay, so people are not getting sound. Let me go over back to the studio. Now it says I'm connected. It should be working. People can hear. Bad sound for some reason in some places. I don't know if it's a horrible weather that people are having all over the country could be affecting connections as well. It's been a real crazy cold snap out there. <laughs> Some people can only hear themselves thinking. Now what? You've got a link, Tim. Oh, Tim's got it in his Twitter feed, the Clinton Archipelago. And I, I was thinking about it. I'm looking at this map. And if you guys want to bring it up, if you're listening live, or even if you're just listening on the podcast, again, you can find the link, I guess, over in Timothy Peck's uh, Twitter, so it's Timothy Peck, all spelled out, P-E-C-K, last name. 
Uh, thanks for posting that there as well. But you can go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and pull up the map and take a look. The Clinton Archipelago, as PJ Media so cleverly calls it, is this map that they've made of all the places in the country that voted majority Clinton in this election. And it looks like a very dispersed archipelago, you know, a collection of islands that spread out. I don't know the exact geographic definition of it. Um, I've only got an approximate understanding of this concept in my mind, but this graphic uh, is the image of, of what I have in mind when I think of archipelago. And yeah, it looks like this, you know, sort of diffuse islands out there. And when I think about it, I've moved around a lot in my life because I was an army brat growing up. And then I moved a few different places as I was in my, you know, early in my teaching career, I taught at UT Austin and then I was over at North Carolina Chapel Hill. And then I went and taught at the air force Academy for three years. And then I came back to California and basically, except for about four years of my life, I lived in Clinton dominated territory or people who would be disposed to vote for Clinton. The only four years that I did is I lived one year in a part of Missouri that isn't in this map. If you're in the St. Louis region, then you're in the Clinton archipelago. So I was out at this uh, fort, Fort Leonard Wood, uh, army base. We used to call it Fort Lost in the Woods. It's not that way anymore. I actually drove through it, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. It was already built up, but it was really out in the boondocks before. Uh, so I lived there one year. And then I also lived in Houston for a few years, and I don't think Houston is in part of the Clinton Archipelago dominated part of Texas. The part of Texas that I taught in, Austin, is, is of course heavily dominated by liberals and, and Clinton voters, unfortunately. But the thing I was thinking of, right, so there's a lot of these places that I've lived in, and they're pleasant places. You know, I love California. I'm a native Californian. I would live in Colorado, for example, again, the Denver and Colorado Springs area and stuff, but that's all dominated by liberals. So many of the nice areas to live in our country are dominated by liberals. Uh, there are other places that are nice, but I'm talking about in terms of weather, you're on the coast or, uh, you know, in, in Denver, Colorado Springs area, you have that beauty of being right up against the mountains. Just some really nice places that I've lived and they're all dominated by liberals for whatever that's worth. So yes, we're doing it live from the Clinton archipelago here. Okay, people are, some people are just getting sound. Oh, I'm so sorry. You just, you just missed my dissertation on all the places that I've lived and how they're all in the Clinton archipelago. So let's go over to the program notes. We have an unpleasant piece of news to start the day off with, which is that the Russian ambassador to Turkey has been fatally shot in Ankara. Uh, there was a terrorist attack there, and I'm not sure whether this particular terrorist is linked to the Turkish government or not. The One of the things that I read, and I don't know if it's in this piece or I've heard it elsewhere, but I'm, I'm looking at the graphic. That's why I'm signing. I'm looking at the graphic of this gunman and everything. It looks like something out of a movie, some of these pictures that they got of the gunman, because you know, this happened at an art opening or maybe a photography exhibit opening in a gallery in Ankara. And it was something like 
Russia is seen through the Turk's eyes or vice versa. I can't remember the, the title. Let me go back down and, and look at this. Um, if I can see the title of what the exhibit was. Anyway, so this ambassador, the envoy, was uh, you know, giving a speech at this opening that was supposed to be just a cultural exhibit. And he got shot from behind by someone who, as far as I know, got into the exhibit and the event, uh, I guess posing as a security guard. Uh, and he had Turkish police credentials, but it turns out, of course, he's an Islamic terrorist. God is great, he said, and don't fit, don't forget Aleppo, don't forget Syria. I, I'm kind of surprised, actually, that they thought they could send an envoy to Turkey, you know, that Russia thought they could do that in the particular situation that they're in, because Russia is helping the Syrian government try to evacuate Aleppo, etc. And Turkey has been supporting the rebels there. So you've got Russia supporting the Syrian government. You've got Turkey supporting the rebels. And you didn't think, I mean, you thought you could just send this ambassador to Turkey and have him not be in danger. As I understood, he maybe didn't die immediately, but he quickly succumbed to the wounds and that he has actually been killed. Um, this is just another casualty of everything that's going on in Aleppo. And all of this, I think, should make people kind of question the wisdom of all the different types of involvements and entanglements that we've got going on in, in the Middle East, that when you start intervening over there, you have to be very careful about whom you're helping and what the consequences of that are again I, I would think it would seem very unrealistic for the Russian government to think that they could send somebody when all of this is going on in the height of this in particular with all the casualties and, and all the chaos in, in Aleppo and, and not have this sort of fallout let me see what people are saying about this if anything over in the in the chat room let's see are we still yeah, no, they, they, they're not reacting to this particular thing. As I said, if you do want to call in and talk about any of these stories, you can at 760-888-5817. I'm not sure that there's so much more else to say about this. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's another terrorist attack, obviously, but it's one that you can see more directly linked to government intervention. I mean, it's killing of a government official as opposed to civilians. And it's killing of a government official tied directly to opposition to these Islamist, as you might call them, rebels over in Turkey. So, you know, you you do see actual, you know, actual causal connection to this as opposed to so many of the terrorist attacks about there. Don't kill the messenger, says Old Toad in the chat room over here. Uh, so you see him as a, as a messenger of some kind. I'm not sure. Um, you have to be clear about what you're saying. Okay. I have to take a look over there. In any event, let's go back to the program notes. Don't let it go.com. And we'll get on to the electoral college, which is what I've got planned for today. And 
scrolling on down here. Actually, you know what? I've got one more foreign policy before we're going to go into that. We're going to go into foreign policy again. And this is on the theme again of thinking about your entanglements and how much you really want to get involved in something. And, you know, we've got this situation with a drone that has been seized by China. And we have asked for the drone back. And the question is, uh, you know, should we ask for the way that we have in order to not escalate things as we don't want to get in a war with China. At the same time, we don't like a paper tiger, right? These are the two different kind of options there. We don't want to get in a war. We don't want to look like a paper tiger. Maybe we'd like the drone back, or maybe we decide that we want to have the drone go in the context. And that's the solution proposed by Donald Trump via Twitter, of course. That's where he proposes so many of his policy solutions. Donald Trump thinks that we should just go ahead and let the Chinese keep the drone in the particular context. And this has also been amply covered now by the Washington Post. We've got a little bit of dueling sort of co- uh, coverage of this event by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Chinese government has finally apparently said that it's going to return a naval drone that was seized in the South China Sea. Uh, This naval drone is doing nothing more than just observing conditions out there, like the salinity of the water and climate conditions and things like that. They're going to affect the, um, you know, just the operation of the Navy. But China went ahead and seized it. Um, But Donald Trump just said, hey, you know, we shouldn't even ask for it back. We should tell China that we don't want the drone that they stole after all. And I think he's saying that in part in reaction to the really lame response that Obama has had so far. And this response was highlighted in the New York Times piece that I had posted on my own social media yesterday on Facebook. Writes the New York Times, they say, across Asia, diplomats and uh, diplomats and uh, excuse me, diplomats and analysts. Yeah, I can speak this morning. Uh, said that they were perplexed at the inability of the Obama administration to devise a strong response to China's challenge. It did not even dispatch an American destroyer to the spot near Subic Bay, a former Army, excuse me, American naval base that is still frequently frequented by American ships, some noted. After discussions at the National Security Council on how to deal with the issue, the Obama administration sent a demarche to China demanding return of the drone. On Saturday, China said it would comply with the request, but did not indicate when or how the equipment would be sent back. You know, so probably it's going to be sent back on their own terms, in their own time. And they'll probably have dismantled it and reverse engineered it and, you know, done all the things that we wouldn't want them to do. It's not like they're going to send it back promptly all in one piece untampered with. Nah. Continuing with the New York Times, they say the end result is uh, say the analysts, is that China will be emboldened by having carried out an act that amounted to hybrid warfare, falling just short of provoking conflict and suffering few noticeable consequences, end quote. So what's Obama doing? He's making sure that he is leaving us looking even more 
like a paper tiger than we, you know, it was that situation when he took office. So what do you think is better? Should, you know, would you, do you say, okay, if we're over there and we know that there's this situation and we know that flying a drone in a certain airspace is going to be seen by the Chinese in today's context as provoking them. And if we do have that drone confiscated, we don't want to actually follow through with anything. We don't want to actually provoke hostilities with them. Is it better just to let the drone go and just say, ah, we really didn't want that drone anyway, right? Uh, The way I was putting it just a little while ago, I I was uh, saying I could have titled the show today, if you like our drone, you can keep our drone, right? Um, That's what, you know, Trump has decided he's going to go ahead and say, if you like our drone, you can keep our drone, keep our lousy drone. We don't need that drone. Maybe that's what you want to do, right? Because if you actually go there and you provoke hostilities, and then if they take the drone and you say, well, we demand the drone back, and then you're not going to do anything about it, and you're going to tolerate this lackluster response of, oh, yeah, we'll return it on our own time. We're not going to tell you what condition we're going to re- return it in. We're probably going to have totally dismantled it and reverse engineered it and figured it all out. Right? Maybe we shouldn't have done anything. That's really the question. Boycott of some kind. Right. You should do something strong. <laughs> Old Toad says, yeah, we should nuke them over the drone. Well, you don't necessarily want to nuke over the drone, right? But you want to do something. And it sounds that, you know, what they have done is such a lackluster response that it's not only made us look bad, it's also made our allies in the region quite nervous because time and again, we're showing that we're not going to actually do anything. Oh, people are still having some technical difficulties over here in the chat room. Three or four refreshes before getting sound again. I really may have to seek a different platform if you guys and I continue to have technical difficulties. Last Wednesday, I had absolutely none, which was wonderful. We'll have to see. Empty demands are unacceptable. That's why we should say, please, (laughs) please give us our drone back. Oh, pretty please. You know, if we could even threaten with some kind of boycott that we're no longer going to do business and things like that, those are the sorts of things that Trump, you would think, would come in with because he wants to sort of drive a hard bargain with China, but who knows? Instead, what we've done is we have made our allies worried about what they can fear, you know, the, the allies in the region from China, and and that's absolutely no good. Uh, I've got a, one piece that's very interesting from the Washington Post, and thanks to Lori Hopkins for sending this on, and it brings up something that I was thinking about Recently, which is the issue of, you know, basically, are we really doing any good by trading with China in the first place? And the piece is titled um, Five Myths About China. And I'm going through my pieces of paper here that I've printed out and I'm not finding it, which is annoying to me. So I'm going to have to go ahead and go find it over in the program notes. Again, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out all the program notes for today's show. Let me get over there. And one of them, assuming that I'm still within my window of free stories, is five myths about U.S.-China 
relations. And the man who's written this, it's an op-ed piece, uh, John Pomfret, was a former Washington bureau chief in Beijing, so he knows that of which he speaks. Myth number one, trade and engagement will set China free. And we were talking about this a little bit on the show a while ago, a few weeks ago maybe, not, probably not that long ago, maybe a couple weeks ago. Is that when Castro died? Just a couple weeks ago. And it, the question came up in the context of Cuba. Is this engagement with Cuba, the trade with Cuba, going to help Cuba become more free and less communist? And there's been a number of people who keep thinking, you know, if we engage with China, if we trade with China, we're going to be setting them free. Um writes over here at the Washington Post, Mr. Pomfret, he says, this idea has been a foundational myth of America's engagement with China almost since President Richard Nixon went there in 1972. It's been used to justify decades of interaction. On the day China was granted most favored nation trading status in 1980, Representative Bill Alexander, supporter of President Carter, told the House, seeds of democracy are growing in China. Flash forward to China's accession to the World Trade Organization in 2001. Robert Rubin, the former Treasury Secretary, assured Congress the move would, quote, sow the seeds of freedom for China's 1.2 billion citizens. So far, he writes, this epical bet has been a bust. China's economy has become more open over the past few decades, and personal freedom for average citizens has expanded. But China's one-party state, represses dissent even more severely than it did 30 years ago in the run-up to the 1989 crackdown on the protests in Tiananmen Square. A slew of internal Communist Party documents indicates that the level of paranoia about American values encroaching on China is at a crescendo. Meanwhile, Western businesses remain banned from investing in a wide swath of China's economy, while Chinese firms can often invest in those sectors, including energy and telecommunications overseas. So that is one thing that, you know, this idea that we want to have this great relationship with them and that somehow that is going to set China free. Myth two, Trump's Taiwan phone call threatened the status quo. And he says, let's take a deep breath and realize the status quo between Taiwan and the United States has been evolving for decades. In exchange for Chinese promises to help ease the United States out of Vietnam and counter the Soviet Union, officials from Nixon and Carter promised that China and America would walk away from Taiwan. Since then, since then however, especially as U.S. presidents have come to understand that the political system is not moving in a positive direction, successive administrations have worked to better ties with Taiwan. So this is not uh, the big upset that everybody's making it out to be. Uh, myth three, United States has tried to contain China's rise, saying no, that's not really true. Myth four, China is killing the U.S. economy. Yeah, uh, we know that that can't happen just from basic economic theory, regardless of what Trump says. Myth number five, China's anti-American propaganda doesn't matter. Yes. It does it well. It does as well. So it does matter whether we're a paper tiger. Um, it needs to be revisited whether all the engagement that we're having over there is actually helping in any way, shape, or form. Yes, maybe there has been a little bit of 
added freedom for the average Chinese citizen. But if you have a government that is still clamping down in totalitarian fashion, particularly clamping down on dissent, freedom of expression, that is ominous. And, you know, you could think, and this is where I was going with a lot of my analysis over the course of the election, particularly my support for Ted Cruz. I was really supporting Ted Cruz because notwithstanding all my disagreements with him, he had the best understanding of freedom of expression of any of the candidates that were you know, put out there for this election cycle. He had the deepest, most thorough and best understanding, was able to communicate it quite well. And, and that's so, so important. So if you say, okay, well, the economy's freer in China and the average citizen enjoys a lot of freedom, and yet at the same time, you're seeing that the government is more totalitarian than ever, that it's clamping down on dissent more than ever, and it's paranoid about America more than ever. Those are all ominous signs. And so you, you have to, I would say, look at the fundamentals there. Um, yeah, I'm getting these indications that people aren't able to hear me out there. So they're having, <laughs> one, one person was saying, are you, are you being blocked as a fake news site because I can't hear you? Well, I'm hoping that that is not the case. And I don't think that Facebook has started blocking fake news. By the way, people, as far as I know, Facebook is not going to block news, even if they think it's considered fake. I, I had one Facebook friend who was saying, and I think she's a listener to this show as well, she was saying that she was thinking of leaving Facebook, right, leaving Facebook because she heard that Facebook is going to delete, not publish, whatever, anything that Facebook as a policy matter disagrees with. And that's not going to be the case at all. From what I understand, what they're going to do, and I was looking on an actual post by Facebook itself because they're going to have these fact checkers. So what will happen is you'll – Maybe, you know, I mean, I don't think the fact checkers are ever going to bother to listen to my entire show. I'll be honored if they do. Right. But so suppose the fact checker listens to my whole show and the fact checker finds something in my show that they disagree with, like, you know, capitalism is good or like selfishness is awesome, something like that. Right. And they say, no, it's not. So the fact checker disputes. And what they'll do is you try to share a link to my show because you're really nice that way. And the fact checker will say. Um, there's something that we disagree with in this show, you know, fact checker disputes content of this. Are you sure you want to share it? So when you try to share my show, you're going to get this little pop-up window. Maybe it's going to make an obnoxious sound too, because those pop-up windows often make obnoxious sounds. So it'll go ding, like in your face. And then it'll say, are you sure you want to share this? Because our fact checkers dispute this. And then you can decide to share it anyway. But then, as I understand it, what will happen is when you share it, there'll be some little warning banner that will say, this content is disputed by the eminent, it won't say eminent, but that's what it, that's the implication, the eminent Facebook fact checkers dispute this. So, I mean, it is Facebook's house. We're all the invited guests. If they want to do this nonsense, they can do this nonsense. And as I understand it, they're not actually going to ban content, but they're going to flag content and they're going to make it harder to share certain content in various ways. So what do we do? We wait and see what happens with it as it's rolled out. We can complain about it if we don't like it. We are customers of Facebook. Do they want our business? All that kind of stuff we can figure out. 
Rob in the chat room says, this is one of the reasons why I have the computer sounds turned off. Yeah. Um, I was on a phone call uh, yesterday and I had to just turn the sound off of my computer because anytime somebody comments on a post on Facebook, if you have your sound turned up, it makes this little ding sound. It's so annoying. And it's almost like, I don't know if you know Harrison Bergeron, the Kurt Vonnegut little short story, the little dinging every so often for smart people. Yeah. Not that I'm so smart or anything, but yeah. Um, just Jean says, I don't need Facebook to tell me what to believe or not. No. And I don't think anybody really does. Facebook has succumbed to the idea that fake news is such a problem that they need to step in and do something about it. And, or they're being encouraged. That's in scare quotes, encouraged by our government to do this. So they've decided they've got this little program, but as I understand it, you won't be, you know, banned from sharing content. You're not going to be prevented. Yeah. Old Toad says, yeah, we do need Facebook to tell others what we believe. That's what we need right now. Now, remember I shared a story last week that people at the New York times are starting to squabble a little bit and say, Hey, Facebook has a monopoly. Maybe this is not so good. Google has a monopoly. And, um, you know, maybe they're starting to encourage antitrust action against Facebook. This is what the New York Times seems to be calling for in a little op-ed that they had last week. I don't want to see that either because what will happen is if enough people get disgruntled, we can have our own, right? Um, we can have our own. Two monopolies get rid of one, Um you mean like Google is a monopoly and Facebook is a monopoly? Get rid of one of them? I don't want to get rid of either of them. I just want barriers to entry to be low so that somebody can come in. Oh, he says, just kidding. <laughs> Two monopolies, get rid of one. Yeah, you know, you just you just want the barriers to entry to be low. And then you want somebody to come in. And this has always happened in the past, right? I've looked a little bit into some of this in the past. When they go after Alcoa, when they go after... Um, AT&T, right? They are doing it usually right at the time that those would have been broken up anyway, because somebody would have entered into the market, or maybe there was an evolution in the technology such that those companies were resting on their laurels and they can't compete against a new lean agile competitor in the market. If Google and Facebook are competing, where's the monopoly? Yeah, no, I mean, Google and Facebook, right? Google, I think, has 85% of the search engine market. Facebook, I don't know what percentage of social media it's got. You know, Facebook also owns Instagram. So if you think, oh, I'm doing something outside of Facebook with Instagram, no, that's why you always get those notifications. Your so-and-so friend on Facebook is on Instagram as so-and-so. Uh, you know, they're, they're linked as well. So Facebook, you know, they bought WhatsApp. There's... They've got quite an enterprise there. As it stands right now, they provide tremendous value to me. If they want to throw some fact checkers out there, let's see what happens with it. It's going to be annoying. That's what it sounds like, but I don't think it's going to actually ban content from Facebook. So that was my little diversion from, from the bit on China. You know, But again, what's the message with China? Every foreign engagement that we're involved with, we need to be very careful if we want to ensure our safety in the future. That was the message, of course, that we've gotten from this morning terrorist attack in Turkey. 
again, I don't understand how Russia thought that they could send an ambassador into Turkey and not have massive security right now for him. Um, you know, was that an inside job? That would be a disturbing thing to hear. I know somebody speculated that it might have been an inside job. And I'd be interested to know that if anybody's got any confirmation of that. Facebook is the standard oil of social media, right? You know, oh, they're so big. They're so evil. They must be broken up. Have not seen evidence of that yet. The thing that I worry more about with Facebook is any government entanglements with Facebook, government influence over Facebook. I worry about that more than Facebook itself being a monopoly. Let me go over to the switchboard, and I've got, I think, Debbie calling in. Hi, Debbie. This is you, right? Hi, Amy. How how do you like that way of answering the phone? Hi, Debbie. This is you. (laughs) (laughs) As if it's a question. (laughs) Sort of. Not really. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a leading question. It's right? very, very leading because I knew exactly who it was. The legal... okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was calling because the Facebook thing sounded a little bit disturbing to me um, because of the fact that they have such a massive, um, that they're the predominant social network and they have meetings sometimes with government officials like Obama. You know, you'll hear about there are these meetings. Obama will come and he'll talk to all the Silicon Valley executives. And um, that that makes me nervous. I mean, as of right now, yeah, it's a, of course, it's a private company. They can do whatever they want. Um, it's a little bit different, uh, I think, of a way that that market might be disrupted as compared with Standard Oil because of something called the network effect. And um, basically, it's just, it's based on a certain kind of growth model. And, and the general idea is if I have a social network and I'm the only person in it, then it's not any value to me. If there are two or three people in it, then it's a very limited value to me. And, you know, so basically a network kind of reaches this critical mass and um, that's just where people go. It's, it's something that acquires a lot of momentum. So that doesn't mean that I think that, that anyone should step in from the government and try to break it up. I think that would be worse. But it just makes me nervous that there's this kind of quasi-monopoly that likes to talk to the government. And it just it looks like something that's kind of like putting a structure in place that might eventually become fascist. Right. No. And, and, and I've talked about it before on the show. And, and one of the things that worries me in, in the current context there is a consent decree between the Federal Trade Commission and Facebook concerning supposed violations of Facebook uh, or fraud by Facebook about its privacy policy. Um, I don't know if you remember that. That was a few years ago. And Facebook supposedly was running afoul of, of fraud. You know, they were actually maybe committing some sort of fraud in telling you what their privacy policy was. They weren't really transparent about it. That's the allegation. And what the Federal Trade Commission did in response is get this consent decree from Facebook and take control of Facebook's entire privacy policy for 18 to 20 years, depending on what the eventualities happen down the road, but at least 18 years. So imagine that the government's got its claws into Facebook for 18 years, whereas before that, right, you know, we've got this tech sector that's largely unregulated. 
how do you take this, you know, these players, these big players in the tech sector where it's largely unregulated, they don't really want to pass a law in Congress, but they'd like some control over them. They'd like to, and, you know, if you want to take it to the extreme, bring Facebook to its knees. I mean, not so, you know, but they want Facebook to be an obedient servant of the government if they could get it, right? Do it yeah, through the Federal Trade Commission. Do it through do it through a consent decree, what you cannot achieve by regulatory legislation. That's how I see the the you know the danger that's posed by that consent decree. And you wonder to what extent this is, you know, part of that. What I, I really should try to get somebody to see if I could get somebody from Facebook and interview them because I have my I, I feel like I'm spouting conspiracy theories. It's, it's it is speculation to a large extent. I don't like the idea that the government does have its claws into Facebook, at least with regard mm-hmm. to its privacy policy. I think that privacy should be left up to Facebook itself. If it was indeed guilty of fraud, which it maybe it was, right? Um, where should the remedy go? The remedy should go to the consumers that were injured by Facebook. The solution should not be that the government's going to gain regulatory control over Facebook for 18 or 20 years, regulatory control it couldn't have achieved otherwise except by legislation that probably would never have passed, right? No, definitely. And, you know, I just don't have the same kind of trust for Facebook as I have for Google Or Apple, for instance. Apple has demonstrated an enormous integrity in protecting the privacy of their uh, their customers. And I really, you know, that just to me, I I have a certain trust in them based on the way they responded when all that pressure was put on them by the FBI after San Bernardino. And Google also takes very seriously the principle of openness and of not like manipulating things in a way that a search would um, help a government suppress, for instance, like in, in his book about um, Google, the, one of their senior VPs, Laszlo Bach, I've mentioned the book before work rules. He mentioned Mm -hmm. um, their, their commitment to basically objectivity and search results and, and China wanted to control certain things about what would come up um, in terms of uh, news about especially political type events, but who who knows? I mean, the government kind of likes to control news about everything, but what they, what they did was they made it clear if uh, that whatever search results came up um, were that they were not getting the full story. Like there was some kind of a disclaimer that says like basically this, the result of this search has been banned by your government, you know, something like that. So they could obviously see, okay, well, we're not allowed to see the story. And Google did go ahead with that. But what they did do was make it so that it was objective in terms of you're seeing what your government permits you to see. Um, And so I really love that story. And it shows a commitment to objectivity that they have because they understand that the value of what they offer, which is their cash cow it's like their 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 core product their integral product is that people trust the search results that they get when they google something and google just what i i get the impression in their it's just deeply embedded in their culture uh, a a fierce dedication to that um objectivity and like that they would never just sweep clear of the the internet something that some politician wanted gone um so, 
but Facebook, I just, what have they done to earn that kind of trust? I, now let me let me ask you let me ask you a question though because and this is just nagging in my brain as as I was listening to you Debbie, I remember during the I think it was probably the last phase of the election cycle a while ago, where if you were typing something into the search engine in Google, the autocomplete feature seemed to have a certain bias against any disparaging phrases used to describe Hillary Clinton. Do you remember that? that the, no, I don't remember that. And um, I, it's I don't know how. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, do you have any examples of like? It was. It was. It was something like people would try to search Hillary Clinton indicted or something, and uh-huh. if you started to type the letters in, it would be giving you completely unrelated things and. It, it, just the auto, you know, the, the autocomplete features of anything, right? Yeah. Um, it can either make expressing certain ideas easier or harder. I, I find Apple does it pretty well. Um, yeah. I was, I was, well, I was I even know, trying auto- to type Ratatouille earlier today or something, and I, it, was, it, it gave me Ratatouille, like, really quickly, I guess, because I've talked about it before or something. Um, so you know, it, it can really do that. And similarly, if you're trying to search for something and, you know, it comes up as one of the first search terms, the thing that you, sometimes that's eerie, right? Um, I've had times where I go in and I'm putting like two letters in of something that I'm searching for. And I'm thinking, okay, the microphone of my phone must've been on or something for this thing to come mm-hmm. up. And it's a little scary, but we do like the ease of that as eerie as it can be at times. Right. Well, autocomplete. My understanding of it, and this is as someone who has never worked at Google, so I don't know all the all the intricacies of how they do things. But my understanding is that it's just based on a statistical model of if you start to type something in, um, how, how people like what's the most likely um, rest of the of the entry that you would type, right. um, or and and it might it might be based somewhat personalized based on you, or it might just be kind of a na- an average in your region. I'm not sure exactly what their algorithm is, but I thought it was just based right. on a kind of a statistical model and maybe not necessarily, maybe since you're, I mean, it would make sense if it were a regional thing because you're in California. So a lot of people in California probably wouldn't be Googling Hillary Clinton indictment. <laughs> there you, you know? go. So I'm in the Clinton could, archipelago as it goes, right? Live from the Clinton archipelago <laughs> right, right. right so, here. It could be some kind of a regional bias, but I really, I honestly don't know, and I couldn't personally vouch for that that Google's 100% objective as as it seems. But they at least um, seem to have that as as part of their cultural uh, zeitgeist. And yeah. I just don't, um, I can't, I don't know. What do you think about Facebook in general? Do you get the feeling? Do you have that same trust for them that you might have for Apple or Google in my case? Based on the total knowledge that I have of Facebook, I mean, hey, you know, they let me place my ads for my show and stuff, so this is very nice. Um, by the way, people who support my show, I do often use the money that you give me to go ahead and promote particular episodes, and that helps to increase listenership, so thank you. Uh, and I, I do. I continue to spend money doing that at times, and the ads seem to go through, and they seem to have a good effect as far as, far as I can tell. <sighs> In general, I think that Zuckerberg is earnest about wanting to 
have a fairly open environment for all of us to engage with each other. And he believes in freedom of expression to a large extent. He is probably also confused about where you draw the line between incitement to violence and hate speech, so-called hate speech. And it would be nice if he would be educated about that. I think he's overreacting to any of this idea about fake news. And I don't know if he's being pressured by the government or he himself would like to cooperate in this because he shares the values of Hillary Clinton or whomever, you know, he was encouraged by, uh, you know, I, I will continue to use it until I see otherwise. We'll see what happens when they start implementing yeah. this. We'll see what the fact checkers, as far as I know, the fact checkers, the people that they are putting in these positions, many of them are biased people. So it will be yeah, interesting exactly. to see what, what the content is. If those people are going to really try to be objective, they're going to take their job seriously. You know, I'm, I'm waiting to see. And let's mm-hmm. say, Let's say I'm I'm a little more optimistic about Facebook being consistent in a policy like that than Donald Trump. <laughs> People Certainly. have to wait and see about Donald so, Trump. I'm I'm a little more optimistic that's not about the standards. That shouldn't be the standards. <laughs> Definitely not. That's the comparison I mean, uh, that popped into my mind because people always say, wait and see about Donald Trump. I've, I've got this wait and see about Facebook <laughs> implementing the fact-checking policy. You know, I guess I just I can think of one, one instance that makes me doubt a little bit Facebook. I mean, there was that scandal where they were sort of trying to ha- cause conservative-biased stories not to show up as, as trending right. as much as left-wing. And then in addition to that, I, w- I remember hearing about how during um, the recent, con- well, it's not really, it's an ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine, but it really heated up a couple years ago, and um, it was when the Palestinians were tunneling under the wall, and then the Israelis were retaliating, and there was mm-hmm. a Facebook group that was called Sexy Selfies to Support the IDF, and it was women <laughs> taking <laughs> provocative photos of themselves and submitting it to that page, as a way of supporting the IDF fighters. And, Whoever did that um, page is brilliant, okay? Yeah, but, you know, so it was a positive type of, you know, it was a little bit racy. Not everyone would necessarily um, find it was to their taste, but, you know, right. so it, that was taken down because it was deemed offensive. But then there was some other site saying, like, kill all the Jews and, you know, some just dis- dis- disgustingly anti-Israel site, which mm-hmm. was not taken down. So, you know, But it didn't Facebook... have sex in it, and that's so evil, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but Facebook isn't, isn't kind of religious, you know. They don't no, have that but, you know, sort of for instance, I'm, um, I'm friends with Linda Cordaire. You know, Quint Cordaire has the wonderful gallery up in Napa. And they have tried to place ads of art, art, but it's art that shows very tasteful nudes, but still nudes. And they've had Mm -hmm. the most difficult time placing ads on Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's not a political thing and it's just that. No. And you know, there there are a number of times, right. And I've faced glitches here or there on Facebook. And then you think it's a conspiracy against my content because Facebook disagrees with me. And most of the time it's either just a glitch glitch or it's, some sort of byproduct of an algorithm that, for example, if people report your content and it could just be any troll 
is using the Facebook automated system to report your content and then suddenly it's gone. And it's not Facebook itself, but it's the algorithm that it has set up along with the user interface that runs automatically for a while. If you come in and complain about an application of this algorithm to your content or your page, you know, some people's pages are taken down uh, for brief, brief periods of time, but it's an error a lot of times or not an error necessarily, but it's a misapplication of this algorithm that allows people to report offensive content. Right. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I, I think you've, you've at least, I'm still on the fence about it. I'm, I'm it on the fence me, too, but it, I'm, in, I'm at least at the, I'm in, I'm in the wait and see category. And like I said, I'm more optimistic yeah. about them and allowing us to express ourselves than I am about Trump protecting our rights. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, true it doesn't I don't know how good that makes me feel about the situation <laughs> that they're more interested in our self rights to express it's, it's all Trump, about expectations but... Debbie we just have like kind of these lowered <laughs> lowered more realistic yeah. expectations going into 2017 we know that if we're going to make our lives good it's going to be more about us than looking out at the current state of the world right 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 yeah so so we'll see and hopefully it won't turn into something that is truly disturbing but definitely something to look out for i think oh debbie you've got john in the chat room started now he says interesting image hits when i google quote idf selfies end quote (laughs) okay so now i'm going to lose my entire audience because they're all going to leave and they're all going to go google idf selfies yeah they were pretty they were pretty racy pictures i i did not post one just for the record there is no (laughs) <laughs> photograph of me on there. <laughs> I did not either. I did not either. And you know the the funny thing is I've also expressed my solidarity like so many times with the French feminists who went on the Champs Elysees to uh, protest ISIS and they did it topless and everything. It's like, no, mm-hmm. I don't have those pictures out there. I don't. I promise. I'm not there. But my favorite though, my favorite more power was cute to them. and not cute and not racy. There, someone took a picture of a pig from the back. And it said ham ass on it. Wait, wait, it said what? You're laughing. I can't understand you, Debbie. It said it said ham ass on it, and and for Hamas, for Hamas, but it right, was literally right. just the backside of a, of a pig. And I just thought that was really cute. Like the pig put a little sexy selfie of the pig there for Hamas. Okay, well. uh Hopefully I haven't um, broken any rules for offensive language on your show. You probably have, but then it can be edited out for any forum that requires that, so we're okay. <laughs> Thank you very okay. much, Debbie. Any, anything else on any of the other uh, potpourri of topics that I've got for today? Um, no, no, that was all. I just The Facebook thing really kind of got me uh, a little bit nervous, but... I think I said all and, I and I think I think with good reason, right? You know, it is the place that we engage with so many of our friends. I've met a lot of great people via Facebook, and we are counting on it. A lot of us to spread content as well and try to make the world a better place. And if we're not going to continue to be able to do that, that's going to be disturbing. And it may indeed end up being harder to do that. And perhaps that's going to spur a competitor to come into the field. We'll see. Yep, we will see. Thanks, Debbie. And Merry Christmas, because I guess, actually, you know what? I'm still going to be back here Wednesday, so I don't know if I'll talk to you then, but if not, Merry Christmas. Okay, you too. Take care. Okay, back over to 
the chat room. Arjun says, I just checked. There's nothing notable. Well, Arjun, that just must mean that Google is censoring all of the interesting content for people who live where you are, whereas John is getting the interesting image hits from his. Um, (laughs) Maybe you and John need to compare notes as to what you think is interesting as well. There could be that. Arjun saying, oh, no, I'm being discriminated against. I doubt it. I doubt seriously. It could just be that the word interesting has different meanings for, for each of you as it does for so many people out there. Let me see if I finished up the China topic. I'm still wondering how we got from China to Facebook in any event. Uh, so now we ar- arrive at the map, and I told you about the map, the Clinton Archipelago map, after which I named this show. And yeah, I have. I've lived in the Clinton Archipelago, all different places within it for most of my life. Just to give you an idea of what life is like in the Clinton Archipelago, namely California is the most notable location, of course, in the Clinton Archipelago. Rob Abiera sent along this story. Jerry Brown says that if Donald Trump under his EPA, oh gosh, we get some great noise in the background there. Love those pop-up ads. Uh, if Donald Trump insists on, you know, downing any of the collection, the data collection satellites, speaking of drones that collect this data, we have satellites that the EPA is using to collect climate data And maybe some of those are not going to be operated anymore under Trump because we're having a rollback, at least, of EPA regulations. At least that's what we're being promised. So what Jerry Brown says is that if Trump does this, if he stops the climate data collection, then, quote, I'm quoting from Jerry Brown, California will launch its own damn satellite. Isn't that big of him? Governor Jerry Brown promised California would continue to vigorously pursue climate science at taxpayer expense, of course. He promised this at the American Geophysical Union fall meeting in fall meeting in San Francisco. And there's a little bit of video, I guess, where he promises to do this. And you can hear him say, in his own words, California will launch its own damn satellite. And, you know, the idea that he's taking my tax dollars potentially to do this is pretty disturbing. I'm sharing, again, in honor of today, we've got the Electoral College. Let me go ahead and look at the map, by the way. Rob, thanks for sending along also this map that gives you the updated electoral vote. There's only 126 pending. We have 259 so far have gone for Trump and 149 for Clinton. So it looks like everything is going along swimmingly. There's only 126 left to go. Isn't it 270 is all that Trump needs for it to be over? I cannot imagine that we're going to have a significant number of defectors among the remaining. I think it's all, yeah, 270 to win, of course, is the name of the site. So, yes, it is 270. Only 11 more to go. Those need to be confirmed. And we've got 38 of those in Texas. I'm pretty sure we're going to be okay. I think everything is is going to be fine. There's not going to be a massive upheaval. I do imagine that among my liberal friends on Facebook, they're going to be upset because a lot of them were seriously thinking that the Electoral College is going to undo 
the results, not undo the results of this election, but, you know, because again, this is a, an actual mechanism by which our founders have made it possible for the electors to have their say on behalf of electing a competent, qualified candidate for president of the United States. You know, I've had friends who have shared things about, you know, how ridiculous it is to call for these electors to vote a different way. It's not totally ridiculous, right? Trump poses some risk, poses quite a bit of risk to our rights, to our well-being. In today's context, I still think we're probably slightly better off having Trump and holding his feet to the fire for the next four years than we would have been if we allowed the Clinton machine to roll into Washington fully again, because it was still never really disengaged right from Washington. The Clinton machine was still present, the skeletons of it to a large extent from when Bill Clinton himself was president, from when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, a senator, everything else. Uh, the idea of having that full Clinton machine in power again in Washington was quite scary to me, given the level of corruption there. And so, yeah, we're going to have Trump. He poses a risk. I'm sympathetic to those people who think he poses a risk. And so I'm not going to get very excited about how, quote, ridiculous it is to have called for the electors to do this. There are certain things that have been done, you know, like the ploy to say, okay, well, Russian hackers have caused this election result. And so therefore we need to have all these electors vote either, not necessarily for Clinton, right? Uh, there's a really funny Hollywood video one of my friends shared, and it was um, all of these people basically saying, you can't vote for Trump because he's not qualified, all these Hollywood actors. And about three or four of them at least said, I'm not asking you to vote for Clinton. I'm not asking you because they know, it, you know, it isn't what Barack Obama, Barack Obama, I guess, said. It's because the Democrats didn't show up at the polls. It's because they did not put forth an honest, viable candidate. Hillary Clinton is just corrupt and, and horrible. And so people, some people voted for Donald Trump out of desperation, I think. And there's many people who stayed home. So looks like it's just about over. And it will be interesting to see if the experiment that Ed wanted to talk about, which is whether that whole story about Russian hacking, whether it's going to go away after today when the result comes in, we'll have Trump confirmed as president-elect, and will there be any more reason to push for this? I think there is, in reality, a reason to go ahead and investigate whether there were Russian government-linked hackers that were actually trying to tamper with the election result, and you want to prevent that in the future. But I don't see that it had any significant effect on this election, and there would be no reason on that basis to call for the electors to, to switch their vote to anybody else other than Trump, as far as I'm concerned. I did share this excellent piece from George Will. Again, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out all of the program notes. A number of my Facebook friends were sharing this piece from George Will from Investors Business Daily. And it's titled, Our Excellent Electoral Vote System. And there's a couple of really interesting points that he makes here that I wanted to point out. There's obviously a lot of good content as there is in so many George Will columns. But one thing he emphasizes here is the extent to which my state, California, 
is responsible for so much of the popular vote, and it's for reasons that aren't that great. So let me get to the paragraph where he's talking about California. Um, One of the things that he mentions in here is something that I noted when I was trying to vote this year, and it is that there were only two candidates on the ballot for senator, and both of them were Democrat because California has redone the way that it selects the two candidates for senator that appear on your ballot. I guess it used to be that you'd have one from the Republican Party, one from the Democratic Party, and now I guess it's just the top two get to be on the ballot, and then you're going to choose from between those or something. And so it just so happened that just so happened. Of course, California, we have so many liberals, but all you had on the ballot were two Democratic candidates. There was no gubernatorial election in California that would bring people out to the polls in great numbers. A lot of people just stayed home. Now, I did vote. As I put it, I puked by mail. We voted by mail. I I don't think it would have been in my interest, given all the other things that I had going on, to actually go to the polls and fight the lines and all that stuff. But yeah, I voted by mail. I didn't vote for a senator. I didn't. I did vote for a president, but I voted for Johnson. I didn't vote for either of those two. And mostly I was there to vote for the issues, right? There were a number of things on the ballot. I didn't want the bag ban and all the stuff that we got. Uh, but, you know, he was saying that there were some unique things about California that skewed the vote, the popular vote in California, even more toward Clinton and that that had a huge role in this so-called idea that Clinton won the popular vote. The other thing that he talks about with the Electoral College, and it's a really good point, is that with the Electoral College, you are going to be less likely to call for a recount all over the country. Imagine if you've got a narrow margin by which one or the other candidate won, and of course that could be due to a miscount anywhere in the country. So whenever you have those close elections, you would have a call for a recount everywhere versus just the places where you've seen a very close vote. And now with the electors, right, it's only in those districts, those places that actually themselves are close that you're going to see calls for recounts. So that is another virtue of the electoral system. You don't want California to be choosing your next president. And I say that as a native Californian who loves many aspects of this state. Also, you don't want, um, you know, every time that there's a close election to have recounts, very expensive recounts all over the country. And another good point. Rob in the chat room says, next time I'm going to be doing it by mail. I stood in line for about two hours. Yeah, hoping that. 306 now, says Arjun. So I guess it's already over. The the vote, Donald Trump has been confirmed. It's going to be very interesting to see. I think I've got Ed on the line, but he has not said that he wanted to, to chime in. Uh, he's not going to be able to say I told you so until we see that that story has actually dropped off of the radar. So. Check that out. But do check out the George Will piece if you are one of the people who's thinking maybe we should get rid of the Electoral College. Maybe this year represents something unprecedented. And he, you know, he's saying, look, this is, I guess, was it one of five times that we've had the popular 
vote go a different way. And this has, I think, been all in two out of five times in the 21st century. I can't remember. You have to go look at all the stats. He's got a lot of stats to basically tell you that this year is not so unprecedented, not so scandalous as you might think. Some really crazy things have happened in past elections with the Electoral College, and this is a mechanism that is a good mechanism for a constitutional republic as opposed to a democracy to have. Um, You can look on the other side and say the Electoral College has always been the wrong way to choose a president, of course, and that is an op-ed from the Los Angeles Times. It might be that Ed is wanting to talk about that particular op-ed, and I'm not sure if that's what he's waiting for over on the queue. Let me see. Yeah, that might be right. Let me let me talk to Ed on this one. Is that what you're waiting for, Ed? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was very interesting because um, uh, um, the, the author and historian Tom Woods, who, who I follow, ha, has made a very good point with regard to the Supreme Court and our Constitution and that it, it that there are a bunch of functional things in the Constitution and there are a bunch of structural things. And mm-hmm. the Supreme Court has made, has made, you know, mincemeat of all the functional things. You know, Congress shall pass no law affecting the freedom of the press. They do that all the time, you know. You mean, you mean right more like sub- substantive things, right? Substantive versus procedural? I think that's the way I hear the distinction well, I mean, usually. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the structural is like, you know, senators are elected for six years, right? And, right. and the Supreme Court hasn't come in and said, oh, it's unconstitutional. Senators have to be elected for two years uh, or that there's, right. you know, uh, there's senators for every state i'm sure uh you know a bunch of people would love to um do that but all of the yeah all of the sort of structural things have been have been preserved and it's just the you know the this function uh is outside of the bounds of the federal government um those things have been ignored so what struck me as interesting about this article this op-ed by Georgetown law professor in the LA Times is mm-hmm. sort of a shot across the bow in that it said, you know, basically the Supreme Court should declare the Electoral College unconstitutional because it goes against right. their previous ruling. And and we 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 laugh at that, right? I mean, you know, it's like the Supreme Court can't possibly declare that unconstitutional. Ha ha ha. Yeah, but they've done they've pretty much destroyed all of the functional aspects of the uh, constitution. And so what is next? Next, what's next is to destroy the structural ones, right? I mean, that's, that's what's next. And so this, this was a very interesting op-ed because not that this is going to happen in the next year or the next two years, but 10, 20, 30 years down the line, um, you know, what, what structural pieces of the constitution that, that enable checks um, and balances are they going to destroy, you know? Right. Including yeah, potentially now, now the mind you, you know, the, the idea of checks and balances is beautiful, right? And, um, you know, you need to have this system of checks and balances so that no one branch of government is going to be populated by tyrants who are going to trample on our rights, right? So we we got to have... But the particular mechanics of how the checks and balances work is, is a different thing. So if you, know, if you take, for instance, here the pull quote right, of this piece, mechanics of the electoral college 
are the product, he writes, of a morally corrupt decision to placate slave states in the agrarian South, end quote. Yeah, so, that's just suppo- false. I well, mean, okay, but, but, but suppose it was even true, right? Suppose it was even true. There may still nonetheless be a great reason to keep this particular element of our system of checks and balances there today. It might be an entirely different reason. So, you know, th- to me, this is just a version of ad hominem. You say, okay, well, this system of the Electoral College came about because of this bad reason, a morally corrupt reason. But if you abstract away from that particular reason and you say, okay, well, in different regions of the United States, there will be different interests. And we want to make sure that those different interests that are specifically regional are represented fairly, but you don't talk about slavery in particular, then boom, you have a legitimate reason to keep the electoral college, right? So uh, the fact that it came from that, it is, it's just ad hominem. Well, I mean, you know, there are a couple of original reasons. The the first one, you know, the real original reason, like the 1780, you know, 88, 1787 original reason was that there was no, there was no real confidence um, back then that, you know, a voter in Maine would know about a politician in Virginia or South Carolina or, and vice versa, you know, except for the, you know, Washington and and Adams and whatnot. I mean, they, but they were thinking down the line. It's like, how would anybody in Maine know, you know, who this politician was who's running for president? And why, why, why not put some knowledgeable people in in between? So they vote for the they vote for the knowledgeable people, and then those knowledgeable people would would uh, would right. And so know, then, and so then, this the guy right could guy. this. This, this guy could argue today, he'd say, well, now we've got the internet, so everybody can know everything about everybody, and all you got to do is watch Twitter yeah. at three in the morning, you know, everything that you don't want to know about Donald Trump, so we're all good. Yeah. Yeah? So, I mean, I just, that's kind of the original reason, and that, it never worked that way, ever. I mean, that was, it was never a problem. Um, people were never voting, you know, for people that they didn't know. So, um, that was just, that was kind of a mistake. Um, the other reason was to sort of interpose someone um, just like, you know, just like the left is saying, to interpose people to fix grotesque mistakes if the people voted for a, a demagogue or, a, you know, a, a bad right. guy, the electorate right. to fix it. And that, that really is it. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with the people who are saying the electorate should change their mind. But right. I, 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 think, I think that's exactly the right uh, you know, I mean, I think that's exactly 100% one of the other reasons is, is to do that. And I think it's, a, it's perfectly legitimate. I mean, the, the death threats, right. no, but it's per- perfectly no, not, not the death threats the at all. Oh, my God, that's been yeah. horrible. And I'm, I'm glad yeah, but, that we haven't seen a whole lot of electors succumb to it. So so your take on that, we we agree on that, Ed. This is something we agree on where we yeah. don't we don't find it ridiculous that people were calling for the electors to use the power that's given to them and, and change their vote. No, no. In fact, I, I, I you know, again, I, I don't, I, I don't agree with the people who are doing, who are doing that from the standpoint of, um, you know, this, this case, but that idea is exactly what it's supposed to be there for. And so you cannot really complain if people say, Hey, we want the constitution to work. Um, you know, the way it was originally intended. And, and I, you know, hooray for them to 
try and convince the electors. Now, of course, you know, if anything, they went about it the wrong way by rioting and crying and, you know, and be, behaving like six-year-olds. But, uh, right. but that, you know, and, you know, making death threats and, and destroying property and whatnot. But I mean, that, that is the reason I, I think it's perfectly legitimate. And I think all of these laws that are against, uh, you know, that, that say the if you're a faithless elector, you go to jail. I think all those are completely unconstitutional. You heard that uh, a court in Colorado upheld Colorado's law against uh, faithless electors. Um, really? Challenge to it by some of the electors. You know, it's mm. like up to a thousand dollar fine and up to one year in jail if you vote against the way the state does it. And somebody challenged it. It was a Clinton elector who challenged it because. Um, Colorado was won by Clinton, and uh, they lost. I don't agree with that decision at all. No, not at all, because, I mean, this is something, this is a purview. It's supposed to have federal supremacy. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm not 100% sure whether it was a federal district court or, or a state court. It probably was a state court. Yeah, so, but yeah, if, they, I, if, I, they, if they keep appealing, it would go to the U.S. Supreme Court, regardless of which system yeah. it started in, yeah. So, no, I'm, and I think your point earlier about um, the the electoral college changes close elections into not so close elections so that you avoid sort of national recounts. Um, you 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 avoid every election being Florida 2000 where they try and manufacture votes out of thin air. Um, well, and imagine and imagine like, doing that not just in Miami Dade County or whatever it was you know where they did that, yeah. but all over the country because it's a popular vote everywhere. Why not just you know, go for recounts everywhere. It it would be yeah. a ridiculous farce. And that's not my point. That is Will's point. That's an excellent point that he made in that yeah. piece that I linked to. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So the, the reason I sent you the LA Times piece was because I thought it was, uh, you know, I, I thought it was outrageous. And the other thing, you know, I Mark Levin has a book, The Liberty Amendments. You may or may not have read it, where he gives some suggestions for amending the constitution to mm-hmm. uh, you know to, to try and decrease the power of the federal government and some of them are very good and some of them not so good but like an amendment a balanced budget amendment like the government shouldn't spend more money than it takes in well that that's si- simply impossible that's another one of those functional things that will get written out immediately right but if you do if you do something like you know uh federal debt can't be issued unless two-thirds of the state legislatures agree. Now, that's a structural thing, right? That's, yes. that's, adding, that's adding something. That would be a more effective uh, amendment because, again, they, they haven't done anything particularly bad uh, to the structural pieces. So, um, but, of course, the you know, Georgetown law professor doesn't want any fidelity to the Constitution. I don't see how you can keep your job after that. That's just me. No, I mean, you know, again, for a professor to take that step of calling for the Supreme Court to undo something like that, you're right. That's that's pretty darn scandalous. And but the LA Times publishes it, so hey, you know, now he's got a prestigious publication. Yeah, yeah, in the fake news media. I did look at the Google Google trends on Russian hacking, and it. Looks like it it peaked uh, December sixteenth, which is uh, last um, Friday or so, right? Last 
Friday, last Friday, and it's mm-hmm. sort of fallen off, uh, sort of fallen off since last Friday. We'll see. Yeah. You know the 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 next the next story that I was going to talk about actually is one that you commented on quite ably and ex- extensively when I was posting this on social media. It's this one about whom do you believe Julian Assange versus the Clinton CIA, right? Uh, Assange has said that the source for the Clinton email hack is not Kremlin or Kremlin linked, right? Whereas, of course, right. the Obama administration has said it is Kremlin-linked, and in fact, maybe we're going to retaliate. Um, you know, the the first thing is somebody says to me, "Oh, well, it's not the Clinton administration; it is the politically independent intelligence community." And you came back at and, and quite ably said something that, you know, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, but you know a lot better, which is that the leadership in the intelligence community is not apolitical. Is that right? Yeah, and it's a giant funnel. Each agency is a giant funnel. Um, right. And when I worked in the Army Intelligence back in the day, we were, we were constantly annoyed because the the NSA or the CIA or somebody would have intelligence that would help our troops in the field. But, of course, they, that's not their job is to help the troops in the field. So that intelligence would never go down into the field because it's a giant funnel up the president. I mean, basically, the intelligence agencies back then had one and only one customer, and that's the president. Now, the DIA is different. That's part of the defense establishment that's to support the troops. But we were kind of annoyed at the fact that you could never get anything from the NSA or um, or the CIA to help support uh, the men in the field. Now, that changed a little bit after 9-11. Um, okay, but it didn't change. It didn't change a lot. No, no, and then and then go back um, and say why, right? Because it changed a bit after 9/11 because one of the reasons that 9/11 happened, they determined, was because there was not enough cross pollination, right? There wasn't enough communication, that's right. right? Right. That's so right. On, if everybody's just reporting up the chain to the, if everybody's just reporting up the chain to, to the DCI and to, and he he briefs the president, then nobody. You know, nobody gets a, a, you know, nobody nobody in one organization understands what anybody else in the other or sub-organization understands. And I, I love that scene. I don't know whether you, you've seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty, but that's the, the wonderful scene uh, where they're sitting around the table and, uh, you know, all of the various levels of the CIA bureaucracy are deciding, you know, what's the probability of, of – uh, Osama bin Laden being at the um, at this compound in about about and and it's a probably an apocryphal scene right it probably never happened but right. you know <clears throat> the woman the woman Maya she's a hundred percent sure and her boss was like ninety percent sure and his boss was like eighty percent sure and then his boss was seventy <laughs> percent sure and then the guy went to brief the president you know the DCI goes to brief the president he says maybe sixty percent sure and I, and I, you know again apocryphal scene but boy does that explain the way the intelligence community works in it, it, it just perfectly. I mean, it just, it just it's, it's, like, it's like a game of telephone, but instead of right. it just being happenstance, what happens, it's like political bias that determines what happens going up the chain. Right. Right. And now in this case, you imagine that the, that the analyst in the CIA is like, well, how sure are we that the, that the Russians, you know, did this hacking to, to, you know, help elect, Donald Trump and the analyst is saying like 
I don't know, 60% maybe, 60%. Right. <laughs> and then his boss is saying 70 and his boss is saying 80. And by the time it gets to the president, it's 100, right? I mean, that's, you know, because it works both ways, right? So I, I love that scene. That's a, that's a wonderful scene in, in that movie. And I, 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 I'm, like, I'm sure it didn't happen that way in real life, but it's, it's perfectly uh, explanatory about how the intelligence community works. And so I, I did put on your Facebook post my theory um, right. on this. And it's not, there's no evidence for the theory, but, you know, again, so the Occam's Razor thing is one of the two, Assange or the CIA, is lying. So that's the, that's the simplest theory. Um, but, a, you know, Occam's Razor is not a law, right? It's just a guideline. And so perhaps, perhaps they're both telling the truth. Perhaps someone inside the DNC hacked the emails and, and turned it over to WikiLeaks while simultaneously the Russians hacked it and like all intelligence agencies just, you know, kept it to themselves because that's what they do. They hoard, they hoard information. In fact, according to the New York Times article, you know, multiple intelligence agencies were inside uh, the DNC and they didn't even know about each other's being inside. So if, you know, right. if two Russian intelligence agencies could be inside, you know, what's to say, if, you know, uh, 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 an insider threat could have done the leak too. So, I mean, with, that's something nobody's really talked about. It's like, maybe they're both, maybe they're both telling the truth. Maybe they really did detect the exfiltration of data from right. the DNC but then server the, But then the difference Russia. you're saying, you're saying that is if, if some of this data did make it to Russia, the Russian intelligence agencies that were the beneficiary of whatever hacks or leaks or whatever they got, they would just hold on to the data. They would not have turned it over to WikiLeaks. That would have not been something that they wanted to do, even if they, you know, Putin decided he wanted to influence the election. You think they would have held on to it? Uh, yeah, I mean, given away data, it's just so out of the ordinary for intelligence organizations and because it blows the source of method, right? I mean, if they, you know, here they had the emails of the potentially incoming chief of staff of the president and, and you know, all the political things. I mean, what, why would they, why would they turn it over? And, and you know, the whole, the whole Trump is is friendly to Putin and, and Hillary's against Putin. That's all just nonsense. I mean, Trump isn't any more friendly to Putin than, than anybody else is. And Hillary, right. you know, gave, gave 20% of the uranium to, uh, right. to of America's, you know, she's not anti-Putin, you know, so right. I mean, that's all kind of just made up. So I don't know. I mean, did, um, did Putin yeah. hate the Clintons, maybe they did. You know, I mean, Obama hates the Clintons. He went out and campaigned for them. Everybody so. hates the Clintons. And then the people who pretend that yeah. they don't hate the Clintons, it's because they fear them. Right, exactly. So, uh, you know, I, maybe it's maybe they're both true. I, I, that's just a speculation on my part. But it, it, it at least comports with the data. You know, another interesting thing that you talked about in that, and you had quite a lengthy response, so if people follow me on the public posts on Facebook, you'll get to see Ed talk about this stuff. But um, you had said something in response to the allegation that there would be no way to turn over proof of the Russian government connection to this hack unless we were going to be divulging our methods. And you said that that was 
probably true, but maybe there was some way if we had some evidence, you know, of Russia's concrete involvement in this that we could provide that and therefore use that evidence as a justification to retaliate or, or whatever. Can you recreate? Yeah, it? I mean, you know, suppose suppose we have a spy in, in Russian intelligence, and the spy said, "Hey, we we did, you know, we did this." I mean, right, we could that. never, you know, we could never like release that proof, right? Because that would blow our agents. The spy or, you know, so there is that. New... That's a very simple example, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably not true. It's probably some sophisticated SIGINT capability on, you know, tapping the international internet and. And again, for the lay people, SIGINT, which you just said, is signals intelligence. So it would be some sort of a technical explanation of how we yeah. know that they right. were involved. And and it's also similarly, it, it, it's quite likely that if we were explaining that, that we would also be giving away crucial data, not necessarily resulting in somebody getting killed or outed, but also, you know, just make invalidating some of our great technology, right? But on, on the other hand, maybe it's something simple and they could give it away. Or maybe it's like five different things. Two they could give away, but three they couldn't. You know, that's kind of the usual way. They call it multi-source intelligence, right, where they take intelligence from multiple different sources and bring it together and try and create a picture. Um, right. So that, that could, you know, and I don't know whether they would want to do that. I'm, You know, okay. I still think the whole Russian hacking thing is, is going to go into the toilet uh, Nobody's going to care. There'll be a congressional investigation, you know, next year, and they'll come out with a report, and no one will read it. And, <laughs> and no good. one will do anything about it either, which is really sad. Let me ask you this. So um, Obama just did an interview with NPR, and now the headlines that are going around are that the reason that Clinton lost is because, quote, we didn't show up, you know, as Democrats. He says she didn't visit the rural areas and just there wasn't the turnout. And in that way, is he trying to deflect everybody from the hacker story? Because he knows it's over in terms of electors. So the, that ship has sailed. And also he doesn't want to be held accountable to actually make good on the threats to retaliate against Russia. Maybe he's trying to defuse all that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, we've seen his red lines before, right? I, I don't, yeah. you know, I don't quite know what, you know, Obama's in a very interesting position. He's not going to leave politics, right? I mean, it's it's like George W. Bush, you know, you didn't hear about him. He'll occasionally do a charity event for veterans, but you haven't heard anything about him in the election or the no. politics at all. But he's not going to leave Washington. He's not going to leave politics. He's going to keep his organization, Organizing for America, Active, um, just like the Clintons kept um, uh, what was what was theirs, uh, Center for American Progress. That was a Clinton organization. They kept that active too. And he's going to want to try to uh, maybe be kingmaker for the Democratic Party. I, I don't know. Um, right. So if uh, the one thing he wants to do is is deflect blame for the loss from himself. If of he's course. going to stay involved, so that's that's my thought. It's, it it, it can't be that people were election. scared of having another Obama presidency. It can't be that possibly, right? It can't be that they hate Obamacare, his signature piece of legislation, so much that they'll do anything to try to get rid of Obamacare, right? Yeah. So and he can't like say, oh, it's all Comey's fault. 
So Comey's him, his employee, right? Right. So he appointed Comey. So it, it's hard for him, if he's going to stay involved, to say it's all Comey's fault. And he's not going to do anything for the, you know, to the Russians between now and, I mean, what, what could he do, right? Break into yeah. Putin's emails and, and, you know, where I'm sure he, there are more pictures of him shirtless on, <laughs> on various animals in Siberia. I mean, you know, what, what's he going to do, right? Putin's um, sexy selfies on behalf of uh, himself, right? Yeah, and, and, like, what is he going to do with the whole militarization of the South China Sea, right? Have you seen the actual yeah. map? The hey, hey, you know scary. what? I've got, I've got 90 seconds. I have to let everybody go. I'm so sorry, Ed. I have to okay. hang up on you. I love this conversation. We have to continue okay. Wednesday, okay? So, so, so come right. back. I'm, I'm so sorry. I have to cut him off. That's so rude, but I do. Um, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I have a few good news stories that you should check out over there, and also a tip about how exercise can – jog the memory just one very small additional benefit of exercise in a new york times piece over there um otherwise i'm going to talk to you guys on wednesday i look forward to that don't forget to watch the video ellen meets an unforgettable kid surfer especially in christmas season you will appreciate a child who gets so enthusiastic about eating all sorts of yummy treats okay everyone so i'll talk to you same time wednesday 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific. Sorry, Ed, I had to cut you off. We will talk again then. Take care.